the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast camp squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and as always, my buds Mike and Brian are with me. Mike, how are you today, my friend? I am doing well. How are you, James? Oh, very tired. It feels like I'm always starting out by saying how tired I am, <laughs> which either I have too much going on in my life. I'm not getting it. Oh, no, wait. I have children. Never mind. Moving on. Uh, Brian, how are you? I am fantastic. Awesome. Ooh. We'll get into why during my geek out. Very good. Save us for that. <laughs> well, then let's jump into geek out. Okay, and since we're all so excited to hear what Brian is excited about, I'll go first. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let's skip our usual tradition of reporting what maladies are happening to us at the moment, and let's let's get to the good stuff. Well, I subluxated my pancreas, and I seem to have had an inversion of my cardinal sack, and I don't know how that flips upside down, but oh, is it taking... Okay, no, we're done. No, like... (laughs) I feel like we've just heard an audio clip from Geek at Arms episode 385. Yeah. Um, Speaking of five, though, uh, Geek at Arms turned five recently. (laughs) Hooray! Yep. What a segue. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so uh, first thing that's up on my geek out is bookbinding because a friend of mine and I have uh, just kind of gotten a small group together and we have been making a book uh, from, I don't want to say from scratch because it's not exactly like we, you know, hewed down the tree and, and mashed the pulp ourselves, <laughs> but starting from paper and cardboard and glue and stitching uh we're we're making at least for me it's going to be a blank journal but he's actually high quality printed uh a book that he had access to through public domain and did all of the 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 copy editing himself and then uh yeah we're we're making books and that is a fascinating and long process (laughs) Because what we've we've already done is made our signatures by taking taking four sheets of paper, folding them in half, and then stitching stitching those groups of four pages together. Um, and you know it's it's eight once you do the folding, and then I've got something to the effect of eight of those eight. So it's not a long journal, but we've stitched them together and then glued the backing, and then uh, just generally gotten the pages cut and square and we've just started to put the the top tabs on you you know those little embroidered things that you see on the book to be kind of reinforcement when you pull them off of the shelf yes Mm -hmm. i spent two and a half hours getting that woven together (laughs) and when i say woven together i mean trying to do the embroidery on that to the point where I said, this is no longer fun. (laughs) I am cutting this with a pair of scissors and I am going to do one of those pre-made ones and just glue it on. (laughs) I have an idea of the level of detail and work it takes to do this. I've seen other people do book binding in SCA A&S events it looks like a laborious process with several steps, but I, 
you look at it, it's fascinating because yeah. what they're doing now, what they've done and what you're doing now really does harken back to how they've done it for hundreds of years. It really is tapping into into these old ways of making books. Some of the things that we're doing is a little bit different than how they would have done it in in the medieval or early modern era. But well, yeah, you're not using horse glue straight from the horse. <laughs> well, you make a lot of assumptions there, James. <laughs> Are you not making your books the way the Vikings did? I don't know enough about Viking bookmaking. I was uh, no Brian Viking books are books that they've stolen from English monasteries. I was, I was referring back to our, how to train your dragon discussion. Oh my gosh. You're right. (laughs) How did they make that book? Anyway? No, well, I'll rewatch the film. I'll rewatch the film. That's fine. (laughs) Um, It is a laborious process, but the fact that you're kind of sitting and doing it in community kind of makes it a different, a different process. Granted, it also makes it really slow since you need 24 hours for the glue to dry on some of these steps. So it's like, okay, so we've applied this layer of glue. We've gone ahead and put this on and now we need to wait 24 hours. Let's pull out our calendars. All right. When's the next time that everybody's available? <laughs> like three weeks. Huh, this is, it'll be this dry seems by then. weirdly familiar when you have a task where you need to set aside three to four hours and then you have, four to five adults that need to find coalescing schedule. Yeah, this is. We don't know anything about what that's like. <laughs> no, no, we don't. Uh, but hey, I mean, good news. I've never lost an audio, uh, any audio from, from b- making book binding. I mean, that's. <laughs> so you weren't inhaling the horse glue. That's good. Again, you make a lot of assumptions there, James. <laughs> the The next thing I'm, I've got on my geek out is Avatar Legends, which is the new kind of still in production RPG from Avatar The Last Airbender. And I've got the early preview releases of the PDFs. And this thing is looking really interesting. Uh, yeah, I haven't had the time to read through it yet, but I've got the same, those uh, same PDFs. Yeah, I, I remember it was like blowing up in all the various geek communities when it the Kickstarter started. And mm-hmm. I looked at it, oh, that looks so cool. I don't have the money for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the question of when, when we were looking at, okay, what are the finances looking like? What, what budget does this come out of? And my wife and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, uh, are, are, are we going halves out of our own personal expenditures? Is this going to be a me expenditure or is this entertainment? She's like, this is entertainment budget. It's like, <laughs> back it, back it. I'm like, okay, guess we're back in it. Um, and it's fascinating. I haven't played it yet. Uh, Derek, the geek preacher white has, uh, has played it. Uh, he, he had some good things to say about it. He said that the combat is a little bit unclear reading the combat system. I think the combat is a little bit unclear. Uh, I'm going to mm-hmm. listen to some, some actual plays to see if I can get an idea of the flow because you're, you're not operating based off of hit points. Like you, you, you don't see it represented in Avatar The Last Airbender where Zuko is going to come up and cast Fireball and see if, if we take 
Katara down to zero hit points and just leave nothing but a crackling mess sitting there on the floor. Like that's just not, that's not their style. Uh, so you take strain, you don't take damage, so to speak. I mean, you do get damaged, but you take fatigue and strain. And there's more that happens with the, I would say the social and emotional dynamic than there does actually punching somebody with a fist of stone. I mean, you can do that. The game is definitely set up to do that, but there may be ways to put strain on your opponents that don't have anything to do with actually touching them with whatever it is that you're bending, which I thought yeah, the is... consequences aren't going to be broken bones so much as they are dealing with the, the relationship changes as a result of the combat. Right. Uh, a broken bone, not going to happen. A bruised ego, now that's some serious damage. Mm -hmm. Which is actually kind of true to the show. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing the reading. The As of the recording of this podcast, they've just released the second, uh, the second installment that has the adventure books. Um, but I'm also really impressed that there's a lot of mindfulness that went into making this game. There's an entire chapter, or at least a section, no, it's not a whole chapter, but it's a section of character creation called Choosing a Name. And it starts off by saying, okay, Avatar The Last Airbender drew from a lot of indigenous populations of North America. It also drew from Korean culture and it drew from Japanese culture and from Chinese culture and also drew from some of their naming conventions. When picking a name for your character, consider these tables. These tables show the character name, the the original culture of origin, and the meaning within that language. And it kind of does um, more than just a nudge of, please don't just make up a name that sounds kind of Chinesey to you, because that can be really offensive. And I'm like... This section doesn't have Daniel Kwan's name on it, but it has Daniel Kwan's name all over it. And I think this is really, <laughs> really cool. Yeah, that was actually kind of echoing in my head. I've been playing uh, that uh, Lost Ark uh, MMO, M kind of an MMO. Uh, and I'm naming my character. I'm like, oh, I got this martial artist character. I need something that sounds a little Asian. -like. I just read that thing in that avatar book. I should be careful about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and that's kind of the cool thing about making the book in, in this day and age is that there's enough awareness that it makes it into the core book. That's not supplemental. That's not stuff that mm -hmm. you're expected to figure out on your own. It's going into the, the cultural awareness is going into the core book. And I might have done the same thing had I not been listening to so much of Daniel Kwan and Asians represent. And yeah, I, I, I think that it, I actually would not have backed the, the thing if, if I had not seen his name attached because I was actually kind of afraid of just exactly that sort of thing. Like, mm. you know, this has the potential to go so, Oh, Daniel Kwan. No, I, I trust what they're going to, what they're going to do. So I, I'm, I'm going to back this. So aside from Avatar, uh, I have been geeking out to Mario Kart 8 because they just released some DLC in a booster pack. So just this last Friday, 
as of the recording of the show. Uh, they had the first installment of 48 new tracks for Mario Kart 8. So for 24 bucks, you pay once and then they release several tracks each installment over a period of two years. And so the first set of eight tracks just got released on Friday. And it took me and my family a little over 24 hours to get the gold cup in all of those in all CC. So we've been, <laughs> we've been playing more than a little of that. I'm going to have to look into that because Mario Kart is a game that is played almost on the daily in this house. So, yeah, I think new courses would be most welcome for the kids. <laughs> you know, for kids. <laughs> for kids. <laughs> That's not foreshadowing at all. Our audience is saying, huh? That's okay. After the end of the show, they're still going to be going, huh? I just watched this show. I, I'm probably going to watch it again, and I'm still going very much. Huh? <laughs> so of the new ones that have released so far, which one was your favorite? Oh, gosh. Uh, in the new edition, what we've got is uh, at a set of eight tracks. One of the ones that I was really looking forward to was the Coconut Mall, because I really loved that one on the Wii. But I think that the ones that have been kind of the family favorites have been the Toad Circuit and also the Sky Garden. Uh, Toad Circuit originally appeared in Mario Kart 7 and Sky Garden originally appeared in Mario Kart Super Circuit. So they've been they've been the ones that we really have been enjoying. Very cool. I have enjoyed when you see courses that have been remastered for Mario Kart 8 that have shown up in past games. I don't know why I love it so much. But every time we play the Excite Bite track, oh <laughs> I, my I'm just gosh. I'm just happy. <laughs> <laughs> that one has every time that one comes up, my my youngest and I are looking at each other like, oh, it is on because I love this course. Mm -hmm. And my eldest brought one of her friends over, and he really loves Mario Kart, and so he wanted to race us, and. That young man is dead now, um, and it's not because he creamed us, but it's definitely because he creamed us. I, I don't know if admitting homicide over the podcast is a good idea, Mike. I've I've got a replicant of him, and I think won't notice for another ten years. He doesn't age, um, but no, it's 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 been a lot of fun. I mean, it, Mario Kart is pretty much how we take out aggression with each other. And sometimes on each other. Hey, it's cheaper than therapy. And considerably less effective. <laughs> <laughs> but that'll about wrap it up for me. All right. Well, as promised, I have some news that I'm very excited about. Tomorrow, I start a new job. Hooray. Been, awesome. I've been at the same place for almost 10 years, nine, nine and some change. And it was, I was kind of just plateauing at Muse. And so now I'm going to be a, what's my title now? Uh, technical consultant for side effects software. I'm not going to be in uh, production anymore, uh, which is a little disappointing, not getting to, to work on shows, but uh, I'll be helping all of the people who are working in production to get the, the best use out of the software. Very so, cool. Is, so you're not working on any particular production. You're working on all of the productions. That's fantastic. Yeah, kind of. So now you can just tell these people that he's going to be at the end of the credits of a movie. And special thanks to, and there's Brian's name. 
Yeah, probably not so much. But <laughs> although I mean, I, seeing that you're kind of plateauing in in a particular job, taking a, a a risk and stepping out into kind of a new realm is a lot better than taking just a sprint off of a boardroom table. Um, so that's <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, and it was a really difficult decision to make because this is the very first time that I've left a job that I wasn't just sick of. You know, th there's a reason that I'd stayed at Muse for nine years. It's just a lot of wonderful people that I really, and I really enjoyed the work, but spending that much time around the same people, you don't learn, you know, you stop learning eventually because they've already taught you everything that you're going to get from them. So new minds, new horizons, and I'm, I'm very excited about it and very scared and concerned that I won't actually be able to do the new job because they hired me to work on software that I have never really, well, I've used it, but only slightly. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think great. That this sounds like somebody just got a new job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you should happen to fall, I'm sorry, fail, um, <laughs> you can always go back to production work. That's true. And they, they've said at Muse, they're going to hold the door open for me if I decide to come back. Oh, that is so, so. kind. Mm-hmm. That, friends, is why you don't burn bridges. That's why you yes. go out the right way and you form relationships with the people you work with. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would be very happy to go back there if if it comes down to that. I mean, there's no problem. If I find out side effects is just not the thing for me, then I'll be very, very pleased to go back to Muse. Awesome. Well, it sounds like everybody's a class act here then. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cool. Definitely. Well, dude, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, the only actual like geeky geek out, I mean, working for a software company is pretty geeky, but, uh, things that other people can relate to is I have been watching the expanse. Uh, <laughs> that is a show the show has been, yeah, it has been recommended to me so, so many times. And it's like, I watched the first, I watched about 75% of the first episode and it's like, ah, no, this isn't for me. But then, uh, Peter Martin said, no, no, no get into the second season, you know, give it some time. You'll, you'll like it. And he was right. Cause it's, it's fantastic. Um, I think I'm in season four now, if I remember right. But uh, there's one particular character that I wanted to, to talk about a little bit. That's the character of Amos Burton. Oh for my those gosh. Who, yeah. For those who have seen the show, you, you know who I'm talking about for those who haven't, this is, he's a little hard to, to pin down at first. Um, he seems to be a man with no conscience uh, or rather he's, he's using other people to substitute for his conscience. Yeah. And he's, he starts out and he says point blank to our, our main protagonist. I don't know whether I should kill you or not. The only reason I don't is because my friend tells me that, or my, I know my friend wouldn't like it. And I've watched him go through this show and eventually, you know, it being a space opera, people make mistakes and his friend disillusions him. And he's like, Okay, well, she's not the the emblem of virtue that I I thought that I that she was, and I can't use her to be my conscience anymore. So he he gloms onto somebody else, and eventually that person lets him down. It's like, well, that person just leaves, and he's like, I can't follow him now. My conscience is gone again. He grabs somebody else, and I'm watching him go from from person to person, and incrementally, it's it's been so slow over the course of the. Uh, the series, he is getting better. He is starting to recognize this is the thing that I should do. This is the thing that a good person would do. I'm not going to do it, but I recognize that it's what I should do. 
What's interesting um, is when you see him being the angel on somebody else's shoulder. Uh, yeah. I don't know that you're there yet, but there is somebody who's going to pull the trigger on somebody in revenge. And he, he lays his hand on that guy's gun and says, you're not that guy. You're not the guy. And you're not that says, guy. I'm the guy. <laughs> I am that guy. <laughs> wow. I mean... <laughs> It's it's good stuff. Man, I was... like, the funny thing is, I called that line. I was watching it for the first time. It was like you're not that Me guy. Too. And like, so like take your daughter and 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 go off. And then he looks at the guy. What he looks at at this this scumbag of a human being in a lab coat. He just looks at them kind of wild eyes. Like I am that guy. Um, and then <laughs> you know you don't you don't see what happens, but you know. But he rejoins the rest of the group. The little girl's like, oh, where's Dr. So-and-so? He's not coming. Like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) We all know what that means. Yeah. They don't need to. Well, (laughs) we don't need to burden the little girl with that. Right. Uh, Right. And he recognizes that. I mean, he doesn't, mm -hmm. he is not so depraved at that point that he says something that would be true to himself. Like sometimes a guy needs to be killed. Like, like I, I shoot people, sweetheart. You know, I like he, he doesn't do that. He has enough discernment and enough growth by that point to say, eh, that's not, that's not the thing to do. It doesn't make him a good person, but oh no, it makes him at least a well, growing person with a trajectory. Yeah. And the last episode that I saw, uh, somebody challenged him about uh, the horrible thing that he'd done. And he stops and he thinks, he says, yeah, Jim wouldn't have done that. I need to get back to my crew. He's recognizing hmm. that without that support of, you know, people who are, are are pulling him up, that he's sliding back into old habits, sliding back into his, his old way of thinking. And the thing that, that has been striking me, um, because there's a character in, I think it's season into season two or in season three. I don't, I haven't been keeping track of the episode numbers. Uh, there's this uh, minister, Methodist pastor. Oh yeah. And she's an interesting character on her own because here's this pastor who never once tells anybody about God. And she has this opportunity with Amos here. He's, he's flashed onto her. Here's my, my symbol of virtue. This is the person who's going to tell me what right and wrong is. And there's his opportunity for somebody to say, you don't need another person to be filling this role. You know, you need Jesus boy. But she, she didn't do that because she doesn't believe it. You know, and I was like, ah, that is, that is the tragedy, tragedy in the middle of this show. Yeah. Here's my question. What would Shepard book have done? (laughs) That's an interesting question. Right. I mean, highly speculative here. I mean, but I mean, I think that that's the difference between well-written clergy and typical TV clergy, which yeah, whatever he would have done, it probably would have involved kneecaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm definitely writing that fanfic soon. <laughs> Shepherd book meets Amos Burton. I've got to get around. I've only seen the first season, and that was like five years ago. So I know there's like a, they just released like season six, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it capped at season six. Okay. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. I 
was kind of wondering where they were going with it. I really enjoyed the characters, and I'll watch almost anything with uh, Shora. I can't remember how to pronounce her last name. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know who I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I love her. Anytime I hear her voice in a video game or see her on screen, just her acting, her presence, her voice as well. Oh, yeah. then you're talking about Avon then. Like yes. yeah. Oh, she was a force on that show. I really liked the way that they let her just become unhinged a few times. <laughs> because in most things that she's in, she's very controlled and she's majestic and she's got that going on here. But then she loses it a couple of times. It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's what I said to my fa- to, to Kaja once or twice. Like, what we really need around here is for a Basarala to show up and cuss at the problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got to get back into the show then. <laughs> yeah. The whole bit when, when she's all stressed out from, from space travel and that's just, it's removed her filters. It's really, really entertaining. <laughs> I mean, uh, not like, she, do you know what? The only filter of Asarala ever had was when she was on network television and then prime picked her up. And then it's like, Nope, say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's been a really, uh, a really fun ride that show. And, this character of Amos, I'm really curious to see where he ends up at the end of it all. Cause it's like, it's a really slow burn on his character progression. Yeah. In most shows you like, you get an, an arc that goes across a season and then the next season they've got a, you know, a different issue, a different arc. And that's fine. In most cases, people are, people tend to be like that or I'm struggling with a thing. I solve it. And then I move on to the next thing that I'm struggling with. It was always there, but it wasn't, you know, the most important thing. But Amos, it's been the same struggle, and it's just like these little incremental tiny steps. And the person that, that we see at the end, I know, is not going to bear much resemblance to the person at the beginning, but you can't detect the in-betweens. It's so slow. It's really nice. I'm not going to spoil anything. Watching him is a, is a fascinating, uh, fascinating set of developments. Yeah, it's a great character study. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, James, what's been on your geek plate lately? A lot. My uh, my plate runneth over. <laughs> I have had three really big geeky things happen in the past few weeks. All of which, just one of them, I could spend my entire geek out talking about. But I find myself, what I really kind of want to talk about is Babylon 5. I mean, Can't since... We blame you. Yeah, since Brian just talked about a long-running science fiction series... We've run out. No, I've got just talk about Babylon 5. And this is our fifth anniversary. We have to talk about Babylon 5 because it's synchronicity, right. right? That's right. And as we look at our past episodes, we find years one through three of Geek at Arms disappeared. Year four blew up. And now we're left with year five of Geek at Arms. So if you're looking for our past episodes, sorry, something weird has happened. And if you begin to hear weird tachyon emissions through your headphones or the name repeated, Zathras. Don't worry about it. Just just look forward to our future episodes. Okay. I, I need to rewatch this it. so I can figure out what on earth you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we recently got a HBO streaming service because it was offered to us for free uh, because we have AT&T for our household phone and internet. And 
I've, I've never had it before, so I was looking to see what they had to offer. Uh, found a lot of really great stuff. Found all of the DC superhero stuff, movies and cartoons. Found all, all of the years of Looney Tunes, uh, which is great. My kids and I love watching those. Uh, found a metric ton of Godzilla movies, which I was not expecting, which just made me giddy. And uh, something else I was not expecting was all the seasons of Babylon 5. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh, awesome. Man, I haven't watched season one or the first episode in years. I'll just, you know, watch episode one real quick and, you know, that'll be that. Classic mistake. Oh, like 18 hours later. <laughs> More like two and a half, three weeks later, and I'm nearly through the whole thing. I've been binging it like crazy. I've been really appreciative of how well it has held up. Effects aside, I don't care. Back in the 90s when this began, they looked great. I think they're still just fine. And But the characters, the stories, really good. And something else I was thinking, like I don't know if – this is personal opinion – I can't remember the last time I watched a genre TV show, in this case science fiction, and the first season was as solid as it was. Usually with the first season, they're finding their footing. You give a lot of allowances. I thought it was good. I thought it was very good, better than it could have been. And I know that there were a lot of problems behind the scenes. I know a lot of changes were made going into season two, but that didn't detract from my enjoyment or appreciation of the first season at all. I mean, I think about half of the first season episodes. Fair. It's very hit and miss for me. See, I remember liking the first season, except that the makeup was was always such a distraction for me. I don't imagine that on HD that's going to get any better. But <laughs> I I do have it on my docket to rewatch it because a friend of mine is very interested in Kajanai's evaluation of the show's interaction with religion. Yeah. And so that's mm. that's on our docket to to kind of... I mean, at least I have have a head to to make a journal, a watching journal out of it and just see what my thoughts are over time as the show goes on. Fair. There are two episodes that I want to kind of shine a light on as far as when I watch them. They shows like whether it's Star Trek, Babylon 5 and more, there's always going to be commentary about what has happened or what is currently happening in the world. And these two although they aired back in 1995, watching them in today's climate was very sobering. The first one was the episode Confessions and Lamentations, where the doctor of the station finds that there's a certain species of alien called the Markab, who on, on Babylon 5, they keep dying. Now, it always seems like it's of natural causes, but one here, one there, and he's like, something doesn't add up. To make a long episode short, they all have a disease, which is killing their entire species. But because of a social and religious stigma that revolves around this disease, if someone gets it, they will not admit they have it. Oh, because man. And they will, they will be ostracized by the others, and they will not admit that. They also won't admit it to themselves. No, I don't have this disease. I have been a good person. I have been clean. I have been pure. I have been holy. So therefore, I do not have it, and I'm just going to continue on with my normal life and be a part of the general population. Oh, my gosh. That actually is a theme of humanity and disease. Mm -hmm. Syphilis and, is... And be 
and because he won't put a mask on, I'm sorry, did I say that? No, uh, because he yeah. just won't admit it and won't seek help, or he won't isolate himself, he won't quarantine himself, he is spreading it to all the others, and by the end of the episode, the entire species is dead. Wow. And that last scene in that episode haunts me. It punches you in the gut. And it leaves the fist there. It just, it's hurt and it aches. But it's interesting to see what they were drawing from, from the past that really mm -hmm. taps into something that is, that is pretty core to, not core, but is relatable to. To what is happening in our current day. Yeah. Yeah. The next episode, it's called The Long Twilight Struggle. Earlier in the season, Two of the major races, uh, the Narn and the Centauri, start up another war. And there's a lot that, that goes on behind the scenes, but the Narn are being beaten. They are making a last-ditch effort to try to stop the enemy. They're going to attack one of their supply worlds and try to buy themselves some time. Well, the Centauri find out about it. They send some of their allies, behind-the-scene allies, who are a major problem in this world the narn strike force is completely wiped out in seconds and instead of continuing the campaign the centauri decide we're just going to skip to the end and they show up at the narn homeworld and begin bombing it populated areas civilian areas all of that and considering what i had been reading in the news recently watching that episode was was very sobering and haunting it's interesting how our science fiction can seem prophetic when really what it's doing is speaking wisdom. Mm -hmm. Because as much as we can put those things on the screen and say, yeah, that's awful. Certainly we've learned so much since then. Clearly we haven't. And there are some lessons that we need to hear over and over again. Brian, you talk about last scenes, uh, which really carry an emotional hit. In the first two seasons, there's a character. He's the, the Narn ambassador named Jakar, who is one of my favorite characters in all of science fiction. Actually, just one of my favorite characters in all of fiction. And he's talking with someone who is still on his homeworld. And the, the message is very shaky and staticky. And he's giving a report how there's dust in the air. It's getting colder. Uh, it's harder to see the sun. Uh, everyone's been taking refuge and shelters and moving from one shelter to the next. And he tells him, we've got one final order for you from the government. And you see Shakar, who is this very proud, very strong uh, man. He goes to the commander of the space station, says, I've just, I've been in talks with my government. Their last order for me is to come to you and to request asylum. And he was gung-ho to go back home. He wanted to go back and fight. Yeah. He was ready to hop on the next ship and get back there and to help his people. And instead, he's been told, no, no, we need you on Babylon 5. We need allies for the future. You have to stay there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I need to rewatch the show. <laughs> rewatch Babylon 5, and we'll talk about it. I'll watch the rest of The Expanse. Oh, yeah, I, I think that what the deal is probably going to be, I watch Babylon 5, and we talk about Babylon 5. You watch The Expanse, and we still talk about Babylon 5. Babylon 5, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not seeing the problem here. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm sad about it. I'm just saying that's what's going to happen. 
uh, I could go on a lot longer, but I'm going to keep it short about B5 anyway. I'm in the middle of season five. Speaking about hit and miss episodes. Wow. <laughs> it is what it is. You know, there, there are some in this season, which I actually thought were, were like diamonds in the rough. Um, and then there's others that are, you know, we're not even going to talk about them. Just going to move on. <laughs> but I've thoroughly enjoyed rewatching this series. And it's not going to be the last time I do. So it's just that it holds up so well. Uh, but moving on from B5, like I said earlier, three very big things have happened in the, the last few weeks, kind of in quick succession. Uh, the first one was uh, that for a while I wanted to move away from the Xbox onto something else where I have more people who play online and also something that I could place uh, more co-op games with my wife. And we were actually able to get our hands on a PS5. How you been liking it? I have been enjoying it a lot. Joy and I were actually up a little later than we should have been playing a co-op game called Divinity 2 last night. Only gotten a couple of games so far. They had a lot of games for free. If you subscribe to like PS Plus, which is their version of Xbox Live online play. So I've downloaded a few games, including a Crash Bandicoot game, which I've not played Crash Bandicoot since 1998. I don't know. And uh, I'm like, wow, this game is, you know, they updated it. Uh, updated the graphics. I'm like, this looks so beautiful. Why is this game still so freaking hard? <laughs> what type of game is it? Like, what's the... It's like a forward, back, and side-scrolling platform game. It's just frustrating. Because if you don't time... Hey, James, ever play Hollow Knight? Uh, shut up. Um, <laughs> if You you know what? I'll play Hollow Knight. You try Crash Bandicoot, and we'll compare notes. I would, and by but... Compare, I... And by comparing notes, it will probably mean drinking most of a bottle of tequila. Um, <laughs> That'll improve the platforming right there. He will. <laughs> it's, it's a game that's a lot about timing. If you don't time a jump just right and hit it at the exact point, you're going to fall into a pit or you're going to hit something which kills you instantly. Yeah, so, gotcha. and I'm like, why are my reflexes not the exact same that they were when I was 19 years old? <laughs> but anyway, I also got a game I have been wanting ever since it came out a few years ago called Horizon Zero Dawn. It takes place in a far-flung future. I guess you could call it post-apocalyptic, but so many years have passed since the apocalypse. Nature has reclaimed the Earth, and humanity has entered in, or into a tribal-like society. There are still animals out there. There are also giant robots that are in the shape of animals. So that makes hunting and living in the world very interesting. But it's also interesting to see humans with, you know, leather, buckskin clothing, uh, beads, and bits of polyceramic armor sewn into their clothing and using fiber optic cable to tie together their bridges, hold their pants up, so on and so forth. This sounds a little bit like the New England Ren Fair. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go check out the New England Ren Fair sometime. Uh, it's, it's, it's here. <laughs> but um, you play as the character named Alloy. She, through access to a piece of technology, is able to interact with some of the robots and with her surroundings in a unique way. It's one of the most visually appealing games I've seen in a long time. It's absolutely beautiful. Fun gameplay, great story, 
and I'm glad that I was able to get it for the price that I did because it has been out for a few. And on the PS5, it's been great. My only gripe for the PS5 was that it, for everything, for as powerful as it's supposed to be, and as much as you pay, it doesn't come with an HDMI cable. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess that tracks. I told Brian, he's like, well, just use one of your own HDMI cables. I'm like, yeah, Brian, because I have those just lying around. I had to remind him, I'm not you, dude. <laughs> I mean, I have a box within arm's reach that has like four of them in it. <laughs> I arrest my case. I mean, yeah. given what I know of you, that number seems kind of low. Well, I, I'm not an, an early adopter. I still have an awful lot of VGA cables, too, in DVI. <laughs> <laughs> As the two cables are just kind of sitting there awkwardly next to each other, kind of side-eyeing each other, like, do we have to talk to them? Back yeah. in my day, stop it, Grandpa. And besides, I have, like, six screens around here that all have HDMI plugged into them, so a lot of my cables are in use. <laughs> you know, sometimes, though, he looks at that box and thinks, Maybe I should order one or two more. I mean, just, so I, just that, so I know I have enough. Actually, the I, fact that I, he has six yeah, in use, the number three. seems about right. But uh, uh. it's just me. <laughs> well, I'm actually expecting a workstation from my new job. So I had to buy two more uh, display cables <laughs> to connect to it. So I actually did order more monitor cables just this week. <laughs> Hands of all those that are surprised. That's what I thought. <laughs> I'm imagining a workstation that he's building with just a few more monitors so that he can get a, just a 360 display and he can just pivot his his work chair, his office de chair around. In the end, he, the whole thing has to be lowered around him, kind of like Darth Vader's meditation chamber. But that's that's just my, my mental picture. Well, now he's thinking about actually doing that and making sure that, you know, air compressors fire so that you see steam coming up along to the soundtrack of dun, 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 dun. Well, I have been thinking about getting a helmet situation with my Oculus. I so actually was having some that. really yeah. bad ideas as to what I could do with an Oculus and my bike right now. So let's just. <laughs> <laughs> I do not recommend that. <laughs> I've played because that then game. Brian, uh, Brian, have you heard from Mike recently? No, no, I haven't. I actually played he a demo of a game at PAX that was, that did involve an exercise bike and an Oculus and also altitude control. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> Here's video of the man flying off an unfinished overpass with a headset on on his bike. If you increase your audio, you can hear him screaming, gotta catch them all. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'll be honest, Mike, that is kind of one of the ways I pictured you going out. I try. But everybody will be able to see him as he goes off the edge. <laughs> I try every day to make sure that on my bike is not how I go out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, moving on, the PlayStation 5 has been very nice. I'm still trying to connect to a lot of members of the geek community on it because I know there are some people out there who have PS4s and PS5s. And I'm hoping to do more online play. That was one reason why I left the Xbox. Most of my gamer group on there has just moved on to other things or just isn't playing at all. And for me... Uh, video gaming is also very much a social thing, and so I'm hoping to find some new people to play with. So, uh, what else? Oh, uh, I did this little thing this last March. I finally, for the first time in my SCA career, got to go to the event called Gulf Wars. How was it? And it, I'm still recovering from it. 
it's a full week long event that's held in Mississippi. And it was a good eight hour drive from where I live in Texas. And, you know, that's not that bad. I used to make that trip from Colorado to Kansas to see family. And the view from Texas to Mississippi is much better than Colorado to Kansas. Louisiana is a very pretty state, thankfully. Like I said, the event, it's a battle between the kingdoms situated in Texas versus Florida and uh, the other uh, kingdoms in uh, Louisiana and Mississippi and more, and other kingdoms come down and fight as well and uh, join one side or the other. A lot goes on, a lot of chivalric combat, rapier, arts and science, uh, pages upon pages of different classes being taught, a lot of bardic, a huge amount of shopping, several dozen vendors there selling their wares. And uh, I don't know how, but I did not end up spending nearly as much as I thought I would. I honestly thought I was going to come back with another sword. Somehow I didn't. My willpower held strong, and I also had Joy with me, so that's another reason why. <laughs> I was going to ask. <laughs> you know what, though? I had my cash saved up. If I had bought one, she wouldn't have cared. I just, there were a lot of really beautiful ones, especially swords from Darkwood Armory. Oh, yeah. And I just, I don't know. There was only one that when I got it in my hands, it was like, oh, I need to put this down right now or I'm going to go home with it. Incoming and, message from your better judgment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the only reason I didn't was because it was another cut and thrust longsword and I didn't have my cut and thrust gauntlets on. So I couldn't tell how well it would fit, like how it would feel with them on if I'd be able to get both hands on it comfortably and be able to maneuver it properly. So I could have gone to camp gotten them and come back but i walked a lot at that event and my feet hurt so that was probably in my favor yeah it sounds like that wasn't a deal that you just couldn't pass up no it wasn't so i mean it was beautiful would i like to have it yeah but the long sword i have right now works too well and i don't need two of them at the moment until you grow another couple of arms then 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 we'll we'll, yeah. we'll talk. if you're ready to go out there like um, general grievous then you'd then then we'd be talking. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I don't even know how many thousands of people were there. This is the first Gulf War they've had since 2019, I think. Both 2020 and 2021 were canceled uh, for obvious reasons. Right. Uh, so a lot of people were there. We went for the first half of the week because, well, for several reasons. Um, I was able to get some fighting in the rapier resurrection battle and that was four rounds over the course of an hour and a half and i about died at the end of it but it was a lot of fun and did not stink as bad as i thought i would because of all of the fighter practices that we've had to you know cancel because of covid and uh, omicron and more and weather unfortunately that was all i was able to do because at some point it's not if it's going to rain and go for it's when and how much and the rain did hit enough so that they had to cancel a few well not cancel but postpone some of the rapier battles for later in the week and unfortunately i was going to be gone but had a lot of fun um saw some people i haven't seen in a while got to take part in a, a bardic circle at night beautiful stars were out around a nice warm fire a lot of people singing tellings and stories and uh, those are some of my favorite moments at SCA events. I hope to be able to do it again in the future. And the 
last bit of my geek out, I'll try to get through quickly because I don't know how long I've been going for. 45 minutes. That was a lie. (laughs) (laughs) But James will make it true just because you said it. Just for that, Brian, I'm going for 46. Buckle up, boys. First, we're going to go back to Babylon 5. (laughs) Season 1, episode 1. It opens on a... The Gathering. (laughs) So anyway, back in March... Actually, just a couple of days after we got back from Gulf War. So I was completely, totally rested and fine and not sore at all from walking like 16,000 steps a day. My uh, father and I went to the Texas Blade Show, which is like a con for people who like really sharp things. Now, every year there is a Blade Show that's usually referred to as the Blade Show held out in Georgia. But they are expanding. There's now going to be one in, I think, California, Blade Show West. And one in Fort Worth, Texas Blade Show. There were 300 vendors and companies there with tables and booths, uh, all exhibiting their blades and selling them. And it was a whole lot of fun. That's a lot Uh, of sharps. Yes, it is. The California one's kind of lame because you can't have anything over two inches. I made that joke to my dad. I'm like, you know what? I really hope they hold, if they're going to hold one out west, I hope it's somewhere than California because it's there's going to be some guard the front with a toothpick saying, your knife longer than this, can't go in. I was worried when I saw that they were going to be coming to Texas about how much it was, was going to cost to get in because you guys know con tickets can kind of get expensive, um, yeah. whatever it is you're going to see. But these were only 20 bucks for a day pass. Really? Yeah. Yeah. The, the conventions that are more geared toward uh, vendors selling stuff to people mm-hmm. will have lower entry tickets for people coming in to browse and higher booth costs for the vendors. Yeah. Makes sense. That would explain as my dad and I were going to the parking garage afterwards, we hear some dude yelling from the back of his Jeep, y'all want to buy some knives? <laughs> if I don't, I'm in the wrong place. I'll tell you what. You know, we were worried that some of the bigger names in the knife world weren't going to be there. Uh, but there were, like, Microtech was there, uh, We and Civivi, Tops, Hogue, Protech, and many more. If you were someone who was either a knife maker or someone wanting to get into it, all the supplies in the world that you needed to get started in it or to continue doing it. High-quality grinders. I looked at my dad and said, so... How long do you think I'd have to sleep at y'all's house if I came home with a $1,600 anvil? <laughs> Was that on offer there? Oh, there were a lot of anvils on offer. I, You know, I don't find that surprising. But when we got there, a lot of the blade companies will have exclusives for like a specific show. A model of knife that will look different, a different handle material, a uh, pattern on the blade, whatever. And Microtech had some exclusives. They showed a video. As soon as they opened the doors, people were running for the Microtech booth. And like when my dad and I got in there, both he and I have Microtechs. And we're like, we should go over, you know, see what they've got. It was like a teeming mass of like three to four people deep around the booth. No line. It was like Black Friday just around that booth. I'm like, okay, I'm not going near that for a while. I did make it over to the ProTech booth and because I'm not going to go to a place like this and not buy something. I did buy a little bit more than I thought I was going to. And I was able to get my hands on a knife called the ProTech Malibu. You can Google away for that. And I'll post pictures of these on Facebook later. Uh, an aluminum handle, um, a flipper with a modified Tanto CPM 20 CV steel blade with a push button lock. And I've wanted it for a long time, but I didn't want to get it until I could actually get it 
in hand, see how it feels. And I really enjoyed it. They had a show exclusive, which had blue aluminum with a satin blade and like a mother of pearl button. It was very pretty. Um, just not my jam. I also ended up getting a blade called the Civivi Crit, and it's a double knife blade. Um, one is a uh, just a standard uh, drop point knife blade. And on the other side, you flip it out, and it's got a multi-tool. It's got a bottle opener, uh, some areas to put in bits or to, as a hex wrench, a ruler on the top, a flathead screwdriver, and a seatbelt slicer. So this now becomes my car knife because everyone right. should have a car knife, obviously. Uh, bought other little doodads here and there from some of the other vendors. Uh, the only other big thing I bought was that I was needing a new bag for work. And there is a company that makes uh, bags, whether it's backpacks or just little everyday carry bags called VanQuest. And uh, they had some of their messenger bags, which are hard to find online. And one thing I should also mention is that a lot of these vendors will be selling their stuff for between 20 to 40 or $50 cheaper than you can usually find it online because that's, you know, show cost, show prices. And also the fact that if you come to them with cash in hand, that's all they're going to charge you, no taxes. So we spent about a good five or six hours there just looking around and talking with some of the different vendors. I met a couple of people who had been uh, contestants on the TV show Forged in Fire. Oh, that seems neat. Yeah, it was very cool. But one cool thing I noticed was that everyone was just, I don't think I encountered one rude person the entire day. Everyone in there had at least one thing in common. We liked knives. And it was so easy to strike up a conversation with literally everyone I was standing beside, whether it's about what they got or what they were in line hoping to get. I, I um, imagine it's a, it's a lot easier to, to be a bit more polite when everybody's got sharp things. <laughs> this is true. So from everything I've seen online, it was a great success. I hope and I expect it will become a yearly thing. And as long as they keep the ticket prices reasonable, it's something that I and I hope my dad as well will be going to every year from now on. If so, I've got to start saving my money for next year now. <laughs> and I think that will finally wrap up my geek out. I didn't mean for it to run that long, but I just decided to knock out everything that had been going on with me in one go. Mm -hmm. And uh, that will take us to our new film club. Uh, which is going to be kind of a different film club than we've done in the past. We've always revolved around a central theme for the movies that we've been watching. And this theme isn't so much of a theme as it is a, here's a movie that each of us just really likes because. It's just kind of a self-indulgent romp, really, is what it is. <laughs> that it we is. We don't have a boss to tell us what to do, so we're just going to do whatever the heck we want. That's right. <laughs> So, um, Brian, you picked the first movie, enthusiastically so. So, <laughs> you take it away, my man. Uh, well, this time we watched The Hudsucker Proxy, 1994 film by the Coen brothers, starring Tim Robbins. And uh, I originally saw this film, I used to work in a blockbuster, and you get seven free rentals a week. And so, eventually you run out of the obvious movies to watch. And this one is... I've been seeing it on the shelf and it's just got Tim Robbins on the cover, like this extreme low angle with this hoop in his hands, looking crazy. And like the HUD sucker proxy. What on earth is that? Yeah. This did not go through the marketing team before they did the design on that. 
No, no, no. <laughs> it did, Mike, except even after having watched it several times, they still didn't know what to do with it. I mean, you're probably not wrong. So I guess the first question we need to ask, and this was one that my wife asked me after we got done watching it. Why did Brian pick this? Oh, I would have expected her to understand at least. <laughs> Before I saw the film, I was, I, I have to say this, is that I had done just a quick look at to what the premise was. So like 1958 corporate America film done in the 1990s. Is this going to be kind of like a retro The Firm or some Tom Clancy <laughs> novel? Like, no, I mean, like... Yeah. Brian has good taste in movies, so I don't know what's yeah, happening know here. That. But I, okay, I, I would like enjoyed to. I have a couple of. I've got a couple of exhibits I could offer about that one. But anyway, hey, look, well, see, if people, I was there for Buckaroo Banzai, then at least we're on the same wavelength. Right. I knew Mike would enjoy it for sure. Well, I had this opportunity of of always bringing home the highbrow stuff, you know, way back years and years ago, and Joy somewhat the same same thing. And so then when the group sent us out together to pick up a movie, they figured we were going to come back with, you know, something really cerebral. And uh, we got to the blockbuster and we we're wandering through and they were playing uh, the trailer for Zoolander. And I was like, you know, in spite of myself, I kind of want to see that one. She says, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and so Joy and I came back to the party with Zoolander and ruined our reputations. <laughs> Anyway, but speaking uh, of like not knowing what this was about, I'm going to say the description that Amazon gives the movie and then what we actually saw are very different things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I guess the first thing out of the gate is to know is that it is a Coen Brothers movie. If that name doesn't ring a bell, we're talking about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So it's going to be weird. They're very, they're very postmodern, absurdist writers. And this was one of, even one of their early ones. This was, this was the year before Fargo. Their first, like, largish budget film. <laughs> Which, if you calculate in the marketing, they probably lost all of. <laughs> yes, it did not do well in the box office. It picked up an awful lot afterward on VHS. But <laughs> I mean, l l let's be fair, because this movie came out the same weekend as Pulp Fiction. This movie has a very unconventional storytelling method, and so did Pulp Fiction. If you're going to go with unconventional story, it is no mystery as to why this got kind of swallowed up. Whoa. Yeah. I'm just having an image in my head right now of what happened if the directors of these two movies got switched. Nope. Nope, nope. Quentin Tarantino's the Hudsucker proxy. Nope, 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 nope. Hit the nope button. Uh, this does stand out among Coen Brothers movies as being the only one that's PG. Everything else they've done has been at least PG-13. They, they lean pretty hard on the R sometimes. Uh, and that probably didn't help it either because you see the it's not right necessarily that people will see PG and think that it's, you know, for kids. <laughs> <laughs> but it does tend to happen. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, and even though, you know, nobody ever saw it, you've seen it sets. Uh, we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit, but uh, the, 
the skyscrapers make their appearance in, in several other movies. And of course, this was the, the one that started launching the Coen brothers up. And so we started getting their movies. And so it made a lot of contributions down the line, even though the movie itself, nobody actually saw it. And I picked it just because nobody's seen it and I like it. I hadn't seen it before. And I, I really feel like I've been missing out. I mean, it has just the right blend of snappy writing and absurdist humor that is just right up my alley. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it occupies this very specific niche. Um, I mean, I haven't made a, a point to watch a lot of I mean, all of the Coen brothers filmography, but I've enjoyed what I've seen. Uh, you know, Oh brother, where art that was just hilarious, entertaining. The lady killers was funny. And so, you know, this fits right in there, except it does have that, uh, that lower rating. So it's, it's more accessible to the people who are listening to this show. I don't know that everybody was, I wouldn't recommend everybody go out and watch Fargo because it's gruesome. <laughs> yeah. The chipper scene was a little rough. Yeah. A little. Yeah, I've not thought about that film since we watched it. Like, my, my wife and I rented that one like, oh, we've heard this is brilliant. <laughs> uh, 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 gross. <laughs> yes. But this film, as you said, by contrast, is, is so much lighter. It really is kind of a breath of fresh air in some respects, despite the fact that it has some, it has a grim beginning. Yeah, um, it opens with a suicide or at least it alludes. But it gets better. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one and a half suicides. <laughs> the the thing that I yeah okay I went and looked for a review of this of this film, and I just want to pull a quote from Roger Ebert. Uh, Not even the slightest attempt is made to suggest that this film takes its own story seriously. Everything is style. The performances seem deliberately angled as satire. What's funny is that he wrote that as a bad thing. And I 100% agree, but I would say that's a merit, even though he didn't see it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I do wonder if uh, he might have changed his tune, if the, the sequence of films coming out, if he'd seen The Big Lebowski first mm-hmm. and then this one, maybe he would have gotten where the directors were coming from a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Right. Um but of course, that wasn't the sequence in which they were released, and he sees them in the theater as they come out. So, but yeah, I, I agree that the the stylization of it is is a uh, a pro, not a con. Should we talk about the film craft? I mean, we better tell us about those sets, Brian. Yeah. Uh, so, um, the company that was was hired to do these buildings, I can't remember the name of the company. It's Mark Stetson, is the the guy that was in charge. And uh, they built all of these gigantic buildings. Uh, I think in the um, the document, the featurettes for the Fifth Element, they call them bigatures. It's the same company that did Fifth Element and this this movie, um, because these these buildings they call them miniatures, but they're six to eight feet tall, mm-hmm. and they're they're so big, in fact, that they couldn't even stand them up on the sets. Um, a oh lot God. of those shots. Yeah, half the buildings are on stilts on the floor and the others are hung from the ceiling above them. So they're all sideways. So that's how they can get those those great shots from like directly overhead. The camera is just in its normal place and everything just turned sideways. That um, is fascinating. Hmm. 
Yeah, there's some really great pictures uh, behind the scenes shots of that, too. Are things like that done anymore at all, Brian? Because the last time I was thinking that I saw a movie which made use of the bigotures making these gigantic small sets was in the the behind the scenes videos for the Lord of the Rings movies. I was thinking the same thing. And I'm just wondering, because of how far digital effects have come, is this craft even used anymore? It's not as common as it was. Um, it still happens sometimes. I know Chris Nolan prefers to get things, you know, in camera as much as he, as much as he can, which is not to say that he doesn't use visual effects. I think people say, Oh, Chris, Christopher Nolan doesn't use visual effects. Well, no, he just uses them. You know, he uses them better. Honestly, um, there were 300 visual effect shots in the dark Knight. There were 300 visual effect shots in the last episode of teen wolf, a TV show. So, He's using less, but that doesn't mean he doesn't use them. But since he, he likes to capture things in camera, um, he's more likely to use miniature sets than, uh, than a lot of directors. So it's not entirely gone, mm-hmm. but it's a lot less common than it used to be. If you had to work with a with a shot, would you rather have would you rather work with a bigature or would you rather work with a completely all digital environment? Uh, it depends on who built the bigature, honestly. Fair. If the craftsmanship is good, then absolutely, I would rather have that in camera just because from the visual effects companies, from a visual effects artist perspective, I like to have a lot more in camera because I'm a tracking and layout person. So if I don't have like nice lines to, to get the focal length right and the camera good, my job is a lot harder when everything is just a big green screen. <laughs> so I think what's what's really good is if you put the the miniatures at the the level where they're going to be the most persuasive and you can put CG in front of them. You can put CG behind them, depending on, you know, how good they look, but it's, it's pretty common a lot to see these, even these big city scenes like, uh, Oh, there's a really great video about the, the big fight scene from Hawkeye uh, with the, the Christmas tree and that owl and the, the, the skating rink. And that entire cityscape is CG. It's amazing. Uh, so, yeah, you see that a lot more often than you see the bigotures anymore. And I've lost the train of thought. Oh, so the, these these buildings, they, they were built for like $2 million for a Hudsucker Proxy. And the stage, their typical uh, procedure was when we're done with the set, we toss it in a big pit out, out back, set it on fire. And like, well, <laughs> we just spent $2 million building all of these things and they are gorgeous. They said, why don't you sell them instead? I was like, wait, 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 wait. We want to film Towering in, a remake of Towering Inferno. So go ahead and put them out there, then light it. Well, you know, sometimes <laughs> that happens. Uh, what was it? The Was it the burning of Terra for uh, Gone with the Wind was the originally the set from the Ten Commandments? Huh. Huh. <laughs> so let's get out that old set and set it on fire and we'll get our... I think that was the, the, uh, the movies they did that for. Get our money's worth. Yeah. Uh, but they sold these sets to Universal to make the Shadow, and then uh, Hudsucker Proxy was a Warner Brothers production, and so when they wanted to do Batman, they had to rent the same buildings that they had just sold to the to Universal to make Batman. So these are the same buildings that you'll see in uh, Joel Schumacher's Batman films. After that was when they lit them on fire because they had been in Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. <laughs> no, then they went to Godzilla. And Independence oh. Day. Yeah, they and should they have burned them before they went to Godzilla. 
They were supposed to be in the fifth element, but Godzilla had had them at that time. They were shooting at the same time. It's funny because when I saw that first shot, I thought, oh my gosh, part of this feels like, I know it's supposed to be New York, but it feels like Gotham. And mm -hmm. it, I guess I'm not the only person who thought that. <laughs> you look at them and you kind of hear those Batman horns in the background. Uh -huh. And it's, it's funny because I didn't realize it was him at the time, but I actually worked with Mark Stetson, the guy that, that built the things. Oh, very cool. Oh, was no. in charge of building the things. Yeah, he was the uh, visual effects supervisor for the gray at Zoic, which was the first feature that I worked on. That is so cool. <laughs> Another uh, name that we've talked about in the past is Roger Deakins, who we had misattributed uh, the consulting cinematographer for How, you, How to Train Your Dragon. Or was it How, you, How to Train Your Dragon 2? I forget. Anyway, uh, Roger Deakins was that consulting cinematographer on that, and he was the one who shot this one. And uh, his experience and skill really shines through in the use of light. And uh, there's a lot of unconventional, just kind of unsettling camera angles that are still very, very well done. Like Dutch angled, low angle stuff. I mean, there were a lot of things that were just absolutely fantastic. Like as messages were going through and you're following all these various vacuum tubes to deliver messages, which is so funny. That was a thing before email. Oh, um, I found the whole mailroom scene delightful. Oh, man. <laughs> and and when they're delivering that message, how the camera is just following this straight on to the recipient. I mean, it's just it was they had some really good shots in this film. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that single point perspective, you've got everything like centered and all of these lines converging in the, in the middle of the screen, especially like the boardroom. Uh, it reminds me of Wes Anderson. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if that was the Coen brothers decision, if that was directorial or if that was Deacon's, but it's really nice. And it, it kind of represents the corporate. Anytime you've got stuff that's about the Hudsucker company is these these centered shots, people right in the middle of the screen and, and lines converging on them to give it the sense of rigidity and, and stability. All of the stuff that's about uh, Barnes, uh, the main character in uh, Norville, Norville Barnes. Yes. All the stuff that's about his slightly off, off kilter personality is where you're going to get those, those Dutch angles and those low angle shots that are just kind of weird. I mean, unconventional little weird is, is the way to mm -hmm. shoot this character. Yes. <laughs> I've been talking a lot. Did anybody else have anything on Filmcraft before I talk about music? I mean, you kind of hit the high points of some of the things that I thought were really fantastic. Mm -hmm. The bigotures, the use of, of just panning over the skyscraper, these long shots trailing down the edge of, of the office building as people are possibly falling to their deaths in a very PG fashion. It, I mean, it just goes on and on forever and it's supposed to only be like 52 floors. I mean, that, that can't be much more than the Nakatomi building. 53, including the mezzanine. <laughs> I mean, it, and it was like, if somebody had done the math and said, if this is with the amount of length that they had put in at this perspective, using this six to one scale model, it would actually have been a 90 story building. Like nobody cares. It was just a cool <laughs> shot. Um, but I, I'll say this. I don't have this in the notes, but just the writing is mm. 
you know, especially since you have 51 with the mezzanine. There are so many callbacks during this script. Like they'll establish a joke once or twice and then it'll let you breathe for a second. And then sometimes without even a lot of sense, like, well, we're looking for somebody who's, uh, who's, who's uh, 41 years old, 51 counting the mezzanine. Like, wait, what? Or, <laughs> or like we've, we've only got 39 days left. 51 counting the mezzanine. Like it, it's a, some of it felt Monty Python ish, but not four weeks, 30 days, a month at the outside. <laughs> What felt kind of Python-esque to me was when the character of Noville was sitting in the diner and in walks Amy and the two blue-collar workmen are on the other side of the restaurant looking at them and narrating what was going on. Do what? (laughs) The cabbies. Yes, the cabbies. They're narrating what's going on between these two. Uh, In walks the dame looking for this. Her life's been hard, but she's got one more chance. It was fascinating to listen to. I'm like... I want to watch a movie where these two guys narrate the entire thing. Like they have seen every con out there. And so they're narrating them as the con is happening. And it's exactly, it's beautiful. It was just beautiful. Yeah. So that's not so much film craft, but it is. I mean, the writing was just way too darn snappy. It was. And I, and I was also surprised at how fast paced the movie was. I mean, they don't really leave you sitting, thinking about anything for too long it clocked in at just under two hours, but it went by at a very fast pace. Yeah, this was a trilogy yeah. in two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Those uh, montages that uh, covered, I think there were like three big montage scenes in the movie that just kind of tell the story really fast and, and take you forward without having to, to actually cover that information. Uh, helped keep the pace up. Mm-hmm. I just about lost it when they were doing the R&D building the hula hoops and you see people behind plexiglass sandbags. I'm like, what are, and then you see these guys in, in, in like combat suits jumping behind the sandbags. I'm like, what is and the hula hoops around a dummy that's got dynamite strapped around it. (laughs) I'm not entirely certain what they were hoping to see there. (laughs) But the fact that the the hula hoop and like one foot of the dummy is all that survives. I think I had to pause it for a few because I just lost it. And they were marking time by a secretary reading Tolstoy novel. Yes. (laughs) War and Peace, Anna Karina. It was just a smart montage. It really was. And uh, those... Those two silhouettes, the guys that are ad execs, mm-hmm. that was uh, Sam Raimi was one of them. And then his longtime collaborator, uh, what was his name? John Cameron. Ah, uh, okay. I looked up their bio. Actually, they and uh, Bruce Campbell were all in high school together. Well, that explains why Bruce Campbell was in this movie. Mm-hmm. Was he? Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, Smitty. The other reporter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You didn't recognize him with that chainsaw in his hand, right? I mean, you know. I did look at Joy. Why is Bruce Campbell in this movie? Because Sam Raimi wrote it. <laughs> uh, and he, he works on in a lot of uh, Coen Brothers films also. He shows up in, in a few of them. I don't know who the third guy was. I looked, but I, I didn't see him in the credits. Uh, but the music is something I wanted to talk about. Because I, I honestly can't tell where the... The, the movie's score ends and a classical piece begins hmm. um, because they used Kakachurian in the, the hula hoop montage, uh, the saber dance. And 
I think the the montage, the laughing montage when they're giving Norville his haircut and making him the president. I believe that was uh, it's the same the same bit from Pomp and Circumstance. Um, oh yeah, I think that was Elgar there, but you can't tell. You know where where did it transition from the the movie score to the the classical piece? I thought that was really nice and very very well done. Uh, and they used actual music from the the film reel was the the music they actually used for film reels in the in the fifties in Britain. Huh. Excellent choices because it fit the movie like a glove. Perfectly. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about plot and theme. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I know a lot of people won't have seen this one even before they uh, they listen to the show, so I'm going to just summarize it real quick. the The basis of it is we've got this company, the Hudsucker Industries, and they're you know high on the hog. Everything is going great, and their CEO. Their, their president and founder inexplicably dies out the, the window, the uh, 45th floor or whatever it was. And they, they realize he hasn't declared an heir. He hasn't, he doesn't have a will. And by the company bylaws, all of his stock, 87% of the company is going to be sold on the open market. And the board is concerned, Hey, we're going to lose control of the company, but we can't afford to buy his stock. It's too expensive because we've been doing so well. So they decide they want to depress the price of the stock, and they're going to do this by getting some schmo, an idiot, uh, as the new president, and let him make all the bad decisions, say all the wrong things, and let the stocks plummet to the point where they can buy it, buy it back. Um, so they get Tim Robbins from Mailroom, Norville Barnes, and he is your optimistic, plucky... Fr- fresh from small town America... He's got a real Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart vibe to him, like Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of thing. And so they install him as the president. And instead of making bad decisions and tanking the company, he invents the hula hoop (laughs) and they make more money than they've ever made. And the chairman of the board has made the foolish decision of selling all of the board members stock in the middle of this to try and drive the price down even further. So they, they find out they sold all their stock and now it's worth more than it ever has been. And so they've got to tear Barnes down from this, this pinnacle that he's on. And that's, that's the basic plot of the movie. Uh, I won't go any further into it than that, because if you're interested, you should watch it. And I don't, don't want to give away the ending. Yeah. Him succeeding with the hula hoop is much to my bewilderment, not the end of the movie. Right. <laughs> I did enjoy the other montage where you see everyone from kids to parents to high society members, even wedding parties, all hula hooping. There's one shot where they were vacuuming doing the hula hoop that I'm like, that has to be a forced perspective shot. There is no way she is holding that vacuum <laughs> and hula hooping. Um, yeah, I would say that this, this film is a good example of unconventional storytelling. Uh there were a couple of times that I really couldn't tell what kind of film I was watching. So I wasn't yes. really sure where I was in the progression of the plot. Um, there was only twice that I found that disorienting rather than intriguing. But most of the time it was me looking at my friend as she was watching it with me. Like, I have no idea where this film is going. <laughs> what were those two moments? One 
I think was right after the brilliant success of of the hula hoop and we had so much to, like like this feels kind of like a triumphal ending but how, what time is it like so i you know i broke myself from the experience of the film and paused the film to see where we were and we're like mm-hmm. we've got a lot of film left um and the other was right at the climax of the film you know spoilers for like a 1994 film which i'm not actually going to spoil and we were doing a long pan down the building like you know i see no way out of this predicament (laughs) i don't know where they're not they're not gonna do what they're setting up they're gonna do so i don't know what they're gonna i don't know where this film is going (laughs) yeah and then you're in the middle or like they're they're not doing this what in the yeah that was uh definitely understandable i think part of the the disjoint comes that it, it seems to have two places where it breaks into the second act. Yeah. Because you've got normal Barnes's plot and that, Hey, I'm, I'm pitching my idea for the hula hoop and that's, that's his second entry to the second act. But Amy Archer has her own when she goes into the clock space. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where suddenly she's in this, like almost an underworld of her own. And so, and since those aren't happening like right next to each other, the film kind of gets out of sync with itself. What is interesting is it gets out of sync with itself while surrounded by clockwork. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say that wasn't a great scene because that was a great setting while she is finally seeing the inner machinations of the Hudsucker uh, corporation. So mm-hmm. she peeps through that, that, that keyhole and sees the real people who are quote unquote, mm-hmm. actually running the show. And she's seeing these inner workings while she is surrounded by the inner workings of a clock. And she is illuminated, but still due to her own resistance to the truth, still befuddled when Moses reveals to her, not, you know, the Ten Commandments Moses, but a dude named Moses. <laughs> I mean, not to say that the guy who had the Ten Commandments wasn't a dude. But we're, we'll unpack that later. Okay. Um, <laughs> and he's saying, yeah, you've still got this all wrong. I'm seeing everything that's happening. And you're still blinded by your own preconceptions. And you know, just like, oh, what do you know anyway? And just kind of saunders off. When we meet the character of Moses, we think like, oh, he's just a guy who's been behind the scenes so long. He's seen so much. And he's got that perspective where he knows more than anyone else uh, because he's never been noticed. But then when we get that scene at the end of the movie, once again, try not to spoil things, but uh, – Basically, he stops time by shoving a broom into well, the <laughs> but that and the fact that he he not just casually he brutally breaks the fourth wall. I mean, he doesn't just break, he throws a brick through the fourth wall. Yeah. And I I found that scene I could literally hear the screech of the tires and the smelling of burnt rubber in my brain. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. What has this movie turned into? Well, yeah, that comes really out of left field, doesn't it? <laughs> it it hurt, and I mean, we're, we're speaking about unique storytelling, and it's definitely distinctive. 
how they how they enact that change that turns around the movie for the main characters. I mean, there's uses of do sex machina. I don't even know what the term is for what they did here. I mean, do sex clockina. <laughs> <laughs> because face it, the two elements that enforce the biggest change, storytelling wise and uh, character wise, both take place inside the clock tower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I, I watched it the second time, I was paying more attention to the door painter. And they're actually, he gets his own musical cue when he he's first introduced that lets you know that this guy is more important than he seems. But because it's just a musical cue and some eye contact, and it's at the very beginning, it goes by, before you even know what you're in for in the movie, uh, it's not apparent until you watch it the second time. It's like, oh yeah, they actually did make kind of a, a deal out of this character right there. And then they ignored him for the rest of the rest of the film until you get to the end. I don't believe that he actually is any type of supernatural force, as they allude for him to be at the end. I just think he's sick and tired of having to repaint names on the doors. <laughs> and he's like, nope, I'm done with it. I'm tired of being interrupted at it. I'm stopping this now. I mean, I wonder if it's just kind of the idea that there are make or break people in these entities that are easily overlooked at a at the first glance, but their presence or absence makes the difference as to whether or not the wheels can keep turning. Mm-hmm. And that we just happen to have one that is kind of representative of the falling axe and the other that is, that is representative of uh, greasing the gears and, and, and fine tuning everything so it can, it can continue to operate. Interesting. I don't know. That was just my read on it. No, that's 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 good stuff. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that you've got these people that exist in every organization. Uh, we actually we were talking about uh, Avasarala in uh, the Expanse as one of these at the beginning, because she's not an elected person. People don't know who she is outside of the the actual inner inner circle of the political spheres, and yet she's driving everything. And these guys are are representative of that too. That. You know, they're not making the big bucks. They don't have the titles. They've got their own agendas and they're doing things to affect the company. It's interesting. Yeah, I've I've been I've been put into a position where I've uh, I've had the order come down the pipe to make sure you give so and so a good telling off because I made a mistake and I'm unwilling to admit that I'm the one who made the mistake. <laughs> so you go and tell them what to. And I, you know, I will just say I. I will make sure that I take all appropriate action with that, sir. And then promptly hang up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) We were mentioning the, the fact that this is a movie from the fit or a movie about the fifties made in the nineties. And there's this tendency, uh, Americans tend to look back at the the fifties as this golden era, Uh, American power on the rise, a lot of optimism. We're post-World we War II. There's a sense of new purpose, uh, rebuilding. I, I actually made that comment to Joy about how I wondered what it would have been like to be in the 50s at that time. You mean before mm-hmm. we passed some of those labor laws? Oh, I guess we'll find out as we're repealing them. Never mind. Soldier on, gentlemen. <laughs> well, well, I meant to be like, how great would it be that instead of school, I was sending all of my three children to work? I mean, how how wonderful would that be? <laughs> yeah, it had a... We know it had its uh, issues. This movie kind of channels that reputation, though, and deconstructs it a little bit. Yeah. Because you've got the the tension between the ideal of the self-made man in Warring Hudsucker, you know, 
50 years building building his empire. And you contrast that with Norville Barnes, who is a very Gen X kind of guy. You know, he takes a shortcut. He gets a lucky break. He's at the top of the company without having the, having to earn it. This is the reputation that Gen Xers have, particularly among the boomers. And, you know, the opening narration calls attention to that, you know, talking about one moment right now. This is this is it. And that's in contrast to, well, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by, by my bootstraps and put in the work for 50 years. And so this I, I enjoyed that uh, looking at the 50s through that lens of uh, of the 80s, pretty much. It's interesting the two classes of people who we see that have, like you said, put in the work. You either got A, the bosses at the top who only care for profit and care nothing for the uh, little people below them, or B, the guy who has been working in the mailroom for 40-something years and is hoping one day to be promoted to parcels. Right. Yeah. I mean, and just the brutality of the orientation. I mean, this guy is getting information screamed at him. Like, like this is your employee code. 157983524311. It will not be repeated. If you do not enter your company code on the point, you will be fired. Like, okay, well, it was nice knowing you. <laughs> Something that we wondered was at the very beginning of the movie, we see Norville. He gets off the bus and he's looking at the switcher plates for the employment company oh was that an actual thing did they do that or was that created purely for this movie i don't, I don't know. know that'll be something to research i guess do, do we know anybody who was looking for jobs in in new york in the 1950s <laughs> i'm sure there's an encyclopedia entry about it somewhere <laughs> i just have to find an encyclopedia thanks yeah. brian <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if we look online, we could find a commercial for the well, Encyclopedia is, Britannica, but that's about it. If this was the 50s, you could find a salesman to sell one to you. <laughs> now, some of those uh, job titles were uh, humorous also. Like cat meat I don't salesman? I do what a cat, cat meats man is. Yes. Cat meats man. <laughs> I'm not sure if they would really have put Exotic Dancer up on the job board. <laughs> okay, so I didn't imagine that. I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, it was there. <laughs> experience needed for all of them right rope braider and would they have really been uh advertising for company vice president on the job board out on the sidewalk mm -hmm. <laughs> and did you did you read the fine print on the uh the hudsucker job listing i tried uh high hours little pay yeah low low wages long hours yeah yeah <laughs> you couldn't read anything else on that job ad but they made sure that you could see that yeah I do love the fact that the instead of circling the want ad, it was a coffee stain on the newspaper that circled the want ad. I thought that was brilliant. Oh, that whole shot was great mm -hmm. because of all the, the repeating circles. I really liked it. So you had the, the coffee cup and you had the change on the thing. And then you had a couple of plates and all of these like salt shakers just circle, 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 circles, and then pick up the cup. And there's another circle. I mean, this is a circle. And he keeps on film. showing his circle to everyone, you know, Right. For the kids. For kids. <laughs> right. We didn't mention that. the uh, His schematic for the uh, hula hoop that he keeps showing people without any context. <laughs> and they just, and the, it's the same look on everyone's face. They look at the circle and then up at him. And the expression doesn't change. Like, huh, what a, what a zero. 
I like that everything that gets made, whether it's the hula hoop, the straw, or the frisbee at the end, on the R and D blueprints, it's the last word in the description is always dingus. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small minor point, but it made me laugh. Well, shall we talk about the characters themselves? Yes, we shall. Mr. Norville Barnes. Oh my gosh. From uh, Muncie, Indiana, because that only gets mentioned like <laughs> two dozen times. And I grew up not far I mean, I grew up in Illinois, but I grew up not terribly far. I have friends from Muncie. But anyway, so <laughs> How this, unfortunate for you. Well, did I you mean, know the song already? It worked. I you good. I am I Go am, Eagles. I am definitely going to ask them. I am not <laughs> going to ask them. Um, although wait a minute brooksy was homeschooled so she never would have sung the song anyway so it doesn't matter anyway (laughs) moving on uh norville i i love the fact that this character is just a pendulum that swings between simple brilliance and abject lack of any sense at all whatsoever like Mm -hmm. he's he's got a great idea i mean and it is just a great idea and he'll have these moments of insight and then he'll he'll step from that moment of insight into bungling the worst social blunder he could possibly manage uh, and it's it's not quite cringy and painful but you can watch that the characters around him are looking at it like it's cringy and painful and it's delightful it's all because he has no experience you know, if he had been in the corporate world for five years, then he would know how to maneuver, how to how to speak to people. But he is brand new in town from Muncie, and he's should have worked his way up, but instead he went from mailroom to president. Yeah. I mean, he's smart. I mean, we learned that about him at the beginning, along with Paul Newman, that he made the dean's list. He graduated in business school. He's an intelligent person, but his naivety is shown throughout this entire movie i mean it almost seems like he never quite for most of it gets off that bus stop in front of the employment office Mm -hmm. well i'm also thinking of some of his interactions with amy archer like he's sitting there talking to this woman and then speculating as to what what sort of woman would think ill of him at at a first meeting now Granted, he does not know that she's actually an undercover reporter who's writing this press about him. But you would think that something would kick in of, I should not speculate as to what a woman looks like and acts like and seems like and has a social life like that I've not even met to any other person at all whatsoever, particularly and especially this young lady who may or may not have my attention. <laughs> In his this defense, though, it's a very guy thing. It's a very 50s thing, too. Yeah, he does well at first, but sticks his foot in it at the end. <laughs> the bit about the musical. Let's go see the king and I, and she slaps him. Okay, Oklahoma. Oklahoma? <laughs> 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 I love that. Like, clearly, that was the problem. And yeah, it's exactly that sort of thing that hmm. that makes you say that he has he has no common sense, not just in the business world, but in his interactions with Amy. Yep. And I'll always be a Tim Robbins fan. I've enjoyed him in so many things. What I liked is once again we get a montage where he's changed from 
you know, the Muncie, Indiana boy to try to be made up to look like a corporate businessman and everything from the haircut, the shave, the clothes. And do you notice that towards the end of that, he's even changed how he talks? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he starts to buy into the the image that they're crafting for him. Mm -hmm. He's turning himself into a little Musburger. Exactly. Because that's that's who his role model is. And it is a it once he gets a little Musburger, like he he takes it as far as he can, but that's also in the wrong direction. He doesn't have the wisdom to understand how to navigate that mm-hmm. socially. And I think that's I think that's interesting, and it winds up destroying him, nearly anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the end of his arc I find a little abrupt. He gets to the end, and I don't think that he I don't feel like he earned his victory. You know, the Deus Ex Machina there was deliberate and it literally took time being stopped and (laughs) an act of God for his path to be changed. Yeah. I'm I'm sure that's deliberate. I mean, the Coen brothers are definitely postmodernists and they wanted to look at that and it wasn't an unconscious choice that he's not earning his victory, but it still felt very hollow to me while I was thinking about his character, particularly. I mean, he got lucky twice and this being a story about corporate America, I, I think that tracks. <laughs> yeah, especially with that Gen X overlay uh, on a story about the 50s. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we're supposed to believe that he became a successful businessman. We're supposed to believe that he got lucky through no merits of his own. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I am not going to say that these multi-billion dollar companies are headed by people who were in the right place at the right time with the right assets that were put behind them and are there because of luck and not skill. But I'm just going to end this sentence. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, in earnest, the few people that we would culturally say are the pinnacle of success, you ask Bill Gates, why, why are you in the position that you're in? He will say, I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time and things should have gone the other way, but they didn't. And I was there. And he pointed to at least two different instances where that was the case and everything could have hinged there. And it was, it was just the roll of the dice. The roll of the dice and a very loving, encouraging, supportive check from parents for $600,000. That never, (laughs) I, I mean, I don't know from experience, but I hear that never hurts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe not never hurts. I've also seen other celebrities that wind up in the papers, but we're not going to talk <laughs> about them either. But speaking of the papers and also of uh, dubious accents at weird places, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to the character of Amy Archer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. In, in a typical corporate America movie, she'd be like just the love interest or she might even be the antagonist. Uh if this was a love story, the fact that she lied to him to become his secretary to be you know, to get the investigative scoop would would be the second act. That would be the get them together, get them apart, get them back together. Mm-hmm. But this was just kind of a side note in her arc. And I think it's funny because she winds up being a more interesting character than the protagonist. I agree. The only thing I didn't like was how they approached the romance between them. Did we expect it to happen? Yeah. I just don't think that they planned it out very well. I didn't find it believable 
the reasons why she fell in love with him. Quite frankly, I don't find the reasons why my wife fell in love with me very believable, but I am not going to second guess them. <laughs> I'm sorry. I derailed that one. No, that's, that's good. I'm going to have to ask Kaja about the Fraley proxy. <laughs> no, you're thinking, wow, why does Joy love me? Man, I really should just buy some more flowers so she doesn't start asking herself the same questions. Oh, no, no. I know why she loves me. Look at me. I'm delightful. I mean, we know that. We established that in our lost episode. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. At one point, I looked at her, and maybe it was just the the accent that just kind of, it was, you know, it was fun. It was here. It was there. It was doing its own thing. And (laughs) I looked at Joy and said, will you tell me what she does? Because right now I can't even. (laughs) Yeah, her her accent was kind of a character all on its own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, her accent change depended on what she was doing. If she was being the reporter, she was keeping up with the office with that old timey mid Atlantic kind of that broadcaster type accent where they all talk very fast. And they, all, I mean, it, that was her presentation in the, in the professional world. When she was going undercover, she was doing a softer voice to mm-hmm. try to be a more timid character. When she was being Amy Archer, she had a different presentation. And you don't very often get to see Amy Archer when she figures out who Amy Archer is. Well, she was obviously having a hard time keeping them straight. Her whole uh, monologue while Norval is carrying her in, she keeps losing her place. Yeah. And having to, like, okay, wait. Oh, yeah. And then. Well, in that place, it's understandable. <laughs> heard of. Because she's trying to she's trying to figure out exactly who she needs to be in order to get close to him. Well, yeah, that's her entire character. She's trying to figure out who she needs to be to be the reporter. She's trying to figure out who she needs to be to to buddy up to Norville. She's trying to figure out, you know, she never she's never honest enough with herself to know who she is. And I think that's what that uh, scene in the clock tower is all about, because Moses is challenging her. You don't even know who you are. How can you know anything about Norville? And, you know, she lies to him. She's lying to herself. But that's where she she makes that moment of transition where she's realizing this this persona that I've invented, you know, with all the voices that goes along, go along with it are not suiting me. They're not meeting the needs that I have. Um, and I think the reason that she's the more interesting character of the two is because she is the one that changes. Mm. She's the only dynamic character in the movie. And Norville is the same at the beginning as he is at the end. Uh, Musburger obviously doesn't change other than being committed at the end, but she learns to give up that, uh, that persona that she's constructed to be a more genuine or more honest person. And it's not comfortable for her. She's, she still falls into her, her, uh, brow beating, um, when she gives Norville his, her diatribe, because that's the way that she can express herself and be strong enough uh, to do that as, as soon as she starts thinking of herself as not one of the guys in air quotes, she's, she's a lot less confident in herself. She's, she's kind of lost. And that's why she wasn't able to talk to him in the bar because she didn't have, she wasn't comfortable enough with herself. She didn't have the, uh, the words to say to him because she doesn't operate in that mode often enough. I would have liked to have seen more backstory in her character 
Um, Me too. Did we ever find out, like, obviously she's pretending to be from Muncie, but do they ever say, like, where she's from, what her history is in the movie? Did I miss that, or do they never delve into it? She's been in New York for uh, several years. We know that much, but that's about it. She's got. She's, she's one of Pulitzer. She's one of Pulitzer. I was about to say. <laughs> and she doesn't know the difference between a new and an emu. <laughs> <laughs> the third major character we've got there is Sidney Musburger, the uh, the corporate man. Uh, we get a really good idea of who he. We know who he is from the get go. This guy that he's known for. They've probably been friends, you know, co-workers for 50 years. He's probably been with uh, Hutsucker from the beginning. Hutsucker's just jumped out the window, and Sid's more concerned about the waste of a cigar. Yeah. Uh, you know, he looks at people as, what use are they to me? What use are they to the company? They're, the president's a cog in the machine. We just need to replace him. So used to being in charge, so used to everyone obeying him, that when he says stop, even gravity does. I love that. The little, the little <laughs> swinging balls the clack 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 and he says stop stop. and they just stop (laughs) well because they know they don't then they'll get docked and fired (laughs) right Right? if you don't stop they dock you Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he's got just the sliver of the clock in his office yeah that was really cool that's a great set Mm -hmm. played to the hilt by paul newman Mm mm-hmm Okay, Mike's not going to make his joke. I, you know, I was thinking about making the joke, like, and they did a great job on his makeup because, I mean, gosh, he hardly recognized that it was the same guy from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But was Paul Newman in Pee Wee's Big Adventure? No, Paul Rubin <laughs> was in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. That was the same reaction I had when he said, <laughs> "See, you know, it was I'm bad." Like I, I had said it. And in I'm the, like, I'd going s- to IMDb was. Paul Newman associated with Pee Wee Herman? Like, no, I had I had <laughs> like made you have some, really lost me here. Yeah, I had made some offhand stupid joke to to Brian before we started recording, and it was only because he poked me that I decided to make it on recording, and I never, ever, ever should have in the first place on or off <laughs> recording. It was a mistake, and I apologize to the internet. <laughs> I kind of feel like we've already talked about Moses and the door painter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think we Which need I to guess revisit them. Brings us to the end of the movie. I mean, do we have anything else to say? Not that I can think of. It's two hours of just good, well-written fun. It's a goofy, unconventional movie. If you haven't already, just watch it. If if you like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? If you like Buster Scruggs, just take two hours of your time and and take a look at this. And on that note, let's head to the zombie apocalypse strategy of the week. Um, Mike, does the plan to stay alive from the undead involve circles? Oh, yeah, absolutely it does. Um, because uh, if you're being attacked by zombies and time is running out, obviously you just shove a broomstick into a clock and... Apparently time is on your side at that point and, and it's all cleaned up from there. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how it worked. I, I don't know how, but I mean, look, you're being chased by zombies. You may as well try to stop time by shoving a broomstick in a clock. What have you got to lose? You know, a foot, a lot. But, yeah. A lot you know, really. <laughs> but. 
Uh, and on that note, that will wrap it up for us this episode. Thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what's our Twitter? We are ArmsGeek on Twitter. Give us a like. Leave us a review if you would. It really helps the podcast. And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 